Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. But today, it's not just me, as I'm being joined by a colleague from the Genetic Society. Emily, would you like to introduce yourself? I will. Thank you, James. Hi, I'm Emily Baker, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Oxford and the Genetic Society's postgraduate representative. And today, I'm here to learn about how you can get an award-winning graduate student paper, what makes an amazing graduate student paper, and learn a little bit more about infecting frogs with a dangerous fungus. (laughs) Indeed, because you are here joining me to explore Heredity's first ever student paper prize, which was introduced in 2019 to recognize the outstanding contribution undergraduate, masters and PhD students make to the journal and to science and research as a whole. And first up, we're going to be speaking to the overall winner, Dr. Donna McKnight, who is joining us now. So welcome to the podcast, Don. Hi, thank you. Um, It's great to have you here to discuss your award-winning paper, but first of all, it'd be really nice if you could just introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, So my name's Donald McKnight, and uh, I just finished up my PhD at James Cook University in Australia. Great. Well, like I said, we're here to talk about your paper, which is called Infection Dynamics, Dispersal and Adaptation, Understanding the Lack of Recovery in a Remnant Frog Population Following a Disease Outbreak. And Before we get into the details of it, it might be really nice if you could just tell us a bit about what this paper focuses on. Sure. Uh, So the basic backdrop of this is that in recent years, there's been a lot of emerging infectious diseases uh, in wildlife and humans as well, as it turns out. And different populations, different species recover and respond in different ways. And so this was looking at why some species are able to recover from a disease outbreak while others don't recover as well. Okay, so I'm quite interested in this fungal pathogen. Can you tell me a little bit about how it affects the different species and the scale of the threat that it poses? Sure. Um, So the specific pathogen I was working on uh, was Patracochytrium dendrobatidis, uh, which causes chytridiomycosis. uh, And it's a fungal pathogen. And what it does is it actually uh, grows in the skin of frogs and other amphibians. And uh, amphibians have really poor skin that they exchange a lot of chemicals and, and water with their environment. And by actually growing in the skin, what the pathogen does is it messes up their ability to maintain an osmotic balance. And so the frogs build up high concentrations of solutes and ultimately uh, undergo cardiac arrests and actually have a heart attack from this and and can die from it. Uh, We've spread it all around the world. There have been really major outbreaks in a couple of places. Um, Central America is one of the key hotspots, but also the wet tropics of Australia, uh, where I've been working a lot of amphibians went through big declines. Some of them even went extinct. Globally, several hundred different uh, amphibian species have been affected by this disease. Okay, so you mentioned in your paper that this pathogen actually prefers higher altitudes. So if there are fewer frog populations up there, why does the pathogen prefer higher altitudes? Right, so this has to do uh, with both the temperatures uh, that the pathogen likes, as well as the frog's immune systems. The pathogen doesn't grow well in really warm climates. Uh, It prefers cooler, moist climates. And so high elevation sites are really kind of the environmental optimal zone uh, for the pathogen. Whereas at lower elevation sites, which is a lot warmer, the pathogen doesn't grow as well. 
And also down there, frogs can uh, maintain their immune system a bit better and do a better job of fighting the pathogen. And so the pattern that uh, happened in the wet tropics where I was working, as well as a lot of other places in the world, is that high elevation populations and species uh, went through really big declines and often completely disappeared from high elevation sites. But at low elevations, the pathogen doesn't grow as well, and they could do a better job of clearing the infection. So even like in the case of my species, even within a species, the high elevation populations uh, have totally disappeared from those sites, but the low elevation populations have persisted and are still surviving. Even though the pathogen is there, they can just do a better job of dealing with it. Okay, so that's the difference in the pathogen sorted, but what about the difference in infection severity among different frog populations? Is the pathology the same in all the species or stronger and weaker in some and others? Uh, there's a ton of variation on how different species uh, have responded to this. Some species uh, have been really resilient uh, from day one and have never really seemed to go through massive die-outs. Some species are very sensitive to it. Uh, and then, like I said, even within a species, there's environmental factors where one particular population might be very sensitive to the disease and disappear from it, uh, while another population uh, might be more tolerant of it. So there's a ton of variation in this. And uh, in my study system specifically, I was working with several different species that uh, have had different responses to the disease. So ones that I've been able to recover from the initial outbreak, uh, as well as uh, the focus of this paper, a species that has not been able to recover. And so a lot of what I've been doing is comparing the responses of these different species to try to understand why some species uh, are now rebounding following a big decline, whereas other species uh, haven't been able to do that. Mm. No, it's it's really interesting. And it's, I guess there you're kind of giving us a really good background to the study in a global context. And you've kind of also introduced some of the species you were looking at. But I wonder sort of very specifically what it was that you were aiming to do in this study. Sure. Um, so just to step back a little bit from that first to give you a, a bit more context, the, the overall goal of my PhD was to try to understand these patterns of declines and recoveries. And for most of it, I've been focusing on species that have recovered, trying to ask the question of why have they been able to recover. Uh, but then in this paper, we decided to flip that and look at the one that hasn't recovered and ask the opposite question. And so the species uh, specifically we're working with, uh, Latoria dei, disappeared from the uplands, survived in the lowlands. But in the years now, since the initial outbreak, it's never managed to move back up into the uplands and recolonize those sites whereas a lot of the other species that went through the same declines did. And so there's a lot of hypotheses about why this species hasn't been able to recover. But specifically, the three we were looking at in this paper were uh, testing the hypothesis that it just has a low dispersal ability. So the thinking was that maybe this particular species just doesn't move around much. Maybe they're a very local species. And so they just don't have the physical capacity to move back up into the uplands. The second hypothesis was that uh, maybe during the decline, they went through a massive genetic bottleneck and are now very inbred and just don't have the adaptive potential that they need to be able to uh, adapt to the disease and become resistant or tolerant to it and allow them to move back up in the uplands. And then the final hypothesis was that maybe they're currently in the process of adapting and just the alleles that are beneficial to them haven't become common enough in the population to actually let them move back up into the uplands. Okay, so these are your three hypotheses. How did you go about trying to test them? Where did you go? How did you collect the frogs? What did you do? Uh, so the first step was quite a few rather uh, laborious, epic uh, trips to these rainforest streams to collect the frogs. Uh, and the basic plan here was to collect frogs along the entire current elevation range of this species. 
So right now, they only range from about 50 meters above sea level to about 400 meters above sea level. Historically, they'd be all the way up to 900 meters above sea level. But uh, what my colleagues and I did is hike along these streams to try to get to the furthest elevation points we could, collect tissue samples from the frogs at both of those points, as well as uh, swabbing them to look at the infection load to see how infected they currently are. Um, The genetics, we just focused on the two extremes, but for the actual disease surveillance, we also got a couple points uh, in the middle of their elevation range. So we could really look at how their current infection patterns match with elevation and use that to help us understand whether or not the pathogen is still a serious problem for them. Mm, Fantastic. So, I mean, you obviously went to a huge amount of effort there. I'm kind of jealous. It sounds like a really fun set of fieldwork. And I guess I wonder what it was that you're actually finding in these patterns. So why weren't these frogs recolonizing these areas? So that's a complicated story. The, uh, I guess maybe the easiest way to do is just kind of to walk through our hypotheses and what we found. So with regards to the first hypothesis, the hypothesis that they don't have very good dispersal ability. Uh, we didn't really find any evidence uh, to support that. There was very high levels of connectivity uh, along the streams as well as across streams, mm. um, very comparable to the other species we've worked with that have been able to make this move back up into the uplands. Um, so we didn't really find any evidence that dispersal ability was limiting them. Uh, and also the infection data, uh, which I'll just point out real quick, that side of things was really handled uh, by Leah Carr, who was an undergraduate student working with me on the project. Um, and so she really gets a lot of credit for the, uh, the PCR side of things. But those data showed that as you get to the highest elevation that the frogs are currently at, you get really high infection loads and really high percentages of the population are infected. So it really does seem like that 400, 300 to 400 meter elevation range is still a hard limit on the frogs. And at that point, they become very infected and moving any higher than that. They, they just can't do it because the pathogen load is too high for them. So it does look like the pathogen is still uh, the problem. Um, the question then becomes, again, why is it a problem for them, but not a problem for the other species? Uh, so the second hypothesis we looked at was this question of, whether they've just lost so much diversity that they can't uh, actually deal with the pathogen and recolonize the higher elevation sites. But we didn't really find any evidence to support that either. Um, There was no evidence of inbreeding. The observed and expected heterozygosities uh, were very similar to each other, uh, well within the expected range. And for basically any diversity metric that we looked at for this species, the results were very similar to the other species that have been able to recover. Uh, So we really just didn't find any evidence at all that a lack of diversity is preventing them. So then the last hypothesis is where things get really interesting, because this was trying to look for signatures of selection uh, within these frogs, comparing infected frogs and uninfected frogs to see if we could find genetic differences in the ones who had chytrid versus the ones who didn't. Uh, And we actually found quite a few consistent patterns there where it looks like the frogs are currently adapting. And interestingly, Some of the markers that we found that seem like they're probably under selection are also genes that a previous study on a very distantly related species found as being important in chytrid infection. So there's still a lot that needs to be done with that result to follow up on it. But the initial evidence is that they are in the process of adapting, but those beneficial genes just aren't common enough in the population yet to actually let them um, march their way back up the river. So what were some of these genes that are actually adapting in these frogs nowadays? Um, So there are a couple candidates. Um, Again, all of this is 
sort of preliminary. There's more work that needs to be done. Uh, but one of the genes that was coming up consistency uh, was a Fucodiase alpha L gene. Um, this was one of the ones that was also found in uh, southern corroboree frogs, uh, the other species another study looked at. And uh, this potentially has important implications for the disease because Fucus is really common in amphibian skin uh, and is thought to play a role in defense against pathogens, um, possibly uh, it may actually prevent pathogens from binding to the skin. And so given how this disease attacks amphibians, the way that it grows in the skin, genes that affect fucose levels in the skin could have really important roles in infection dynamics and in preventing the pathogen from really taking hold. Um, there were several other genes that are potentially important. Uh, one gene uh, related to the MH2 complex showed up, as well as several genes uh, involved in the regulation of tumors and apoptosis. Uh, and so again, because of the way that this fungus really uh, forms cysts in the skin and grows in the skin, uh, genes related to, to cell death and to tumors could be really important. And there's a couple of other experimental laboratory studies that have suggested that tumor regulating genes do have a really important role uh, in preventing the disease or allowing frogs to tolerate it. Okay, so you mentioned that there was a previous outbreak in the 1980s when this outbreak absolutely decimated the frog population. But why weren't these genes adapting back then? Why is it only now when there's less of the pathogen around? Uh, so good question. Um, a, a couple of things there. The, the pathogen is still very common in these low elevation populations. It doesn't really seem like it's gone away in any way. It's just that the temperatures are, are warm enough in the low elevation populations that they don't experience the large outbreaks uh, or the large die-offs rather. There's still a lot of disease. It just doesn't uh, cause the die-offs. Um, but as far as why they're, they're being slow to recover, it's sort of anyone's guess. Uh, one possibility is just that um, the selection pressure in these low elevation populations may not be particularly strong uh, because again, most frogs do seem to be able to clear the infection. Presumably having the disease does have a fitness cost. Uh, but one of the, the kind of follow-ups to this study that we'd really love to see is actually a study that looks at how heritable uh, these beneficial traits are, as well as looking at the actual sort of selection pressure you'd have in this system and how much BD, uh, the fungus, would actually drive selection at these low elevation sites. Okay, so how can you use this work to help protect endangered populations in the face of an outbreak or help them recover after one? Um, so one of the, the key things that came out in this study, uh, as well as some of the other research we've published, is just the importance of these low elevation reservoirs. Um, if you were to just go to one of these sites and hike along the stream with me, these low elevation sites aren't the ones that you necessarily pick for conservation. Uh, you'd naturally want the high elevation sites where you have this beautiful, lush rainforest. Uh, the drier, scrubbier, low elevation sites wouldn't really be the ones that jump out at you. But it turns out they're really important. Because having these low elevation sites is really what's allowed frogs to survive this outbreak at all. And some of the other work that we've done, uh, as well as this work, shows that the larger the area of low elevation habitat available to these frogs, the more diversity they've actually been able to uh, retain during the outbreak. Um, so some of the other species we've worked with as well, sites that had very little low elevation uh, habitat had very low genetic diversity. Um, so I think one of the keys from this is really to make sure that we're not just preserving the ideal habitat for species, but are also preserving environmental refuges for them that they can escape to during things like disease outbreaks. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's fascinating. And I guess you've kind of already touched upon it a little bit with sort of protecting maybe less than ideal habitats. But obviously, we're kind of interested at heredity with the sort of very broad messages within studies like this. So I wonder what you think the sort of broad take homes are, maybe beyond chytrid, maybe even beyond amphibians. Uh, if I could quote Jurassic Park here for a second, uh, <laughs> life finds Always. a way. Uh, <laughs> um. So yeah, these frogs are gradually uh, starting to adapt to the disease. Uh, it looks like, again, there's, you know, there's a lot more work to be done in this system, but the data do suggest that they are in the process of adapting to it. And around the world, we're starting to see this uh, with various species starting to come back. And so it's going to be really exciting over the next uh, few years to see how this field develops as we learn more about how the different species are coming back, which ones are adapting, which ones are shifting the microbiomes. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see these broad patterns emerge of how different species are being able to recover. Fantastic. Um, and just generally speaking, Don, what would you say your top piece of advice is for students writing manuscripts in their PhDs? You know, how would you say what makes a great manuscript? I think it's really important for science to tell a story. Uh, a lot of times we get so hung up with precisely reporting our, the details of our results that we forget to actually make a story. It's got to be a story based on evidence, obviously, but uh, it's, it's important to frame the results in a way that actually tells you something about what's going on rather than just giving you a whole bunch of data. Mm, definitely. Uh, what I find really funny about the answer is that um, we've also been doing a series with our editors here at Heredity. And what you just said could basically have come from any one of the senior PIs that are running the journal. Finding, <laughs> finding that story is kind of really key to, to communicating your data and communicating the science. And it's been a joy having you here. Um, it's been fantastic hearing about your paper, about your experiences. And I wonder if just to finish up, you could remind everybody listening what your award-winning paper is called. And also, I mean, you've already mentioned one person, but just tell us about your co-authors who were really integral to the study getting produced. Sure. Uh, so the paper is Infection Dynamics, Dispersal and Adaptation, Understanding the Lack of Recovery in a Remnant Frog Population Following a Disease Outbreak. Uh, and my co-authors were Leah Carr, uh, who was an undergraduate, uh, who did a really great job working on this project with me, uh, Dr. Deborah Bauer, Dr. Lynn Schwarzkopf, Dr. Ross Alford, and Dr. Kyle Zenger, who advised me on this project. I also just really uh, quickly want to acknowledge uh, Dr. Eric Nordberg and Donna Simmons, who did a lot of this fieldwork with me, suffered through some pretty horrendous situations to help me collect these data. <laughs> the perils of fieldwork. Um... Yeah. Well, it's been absolutely excellent and a real pleasure having you on the podcast to hear about your work. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
It was great having Donald on the podcast to talk about his paper. I think it's pretty clear why it's held in such high regard by the editorial team. Yeah, but there was some real stiff competition. So there were tons of stellar manuscripts, including the runners-up. So sex linkage of the skeletal muscle sodium channel gene explains apparent deviations from the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium of tetradoxin-resistant alleles in garter snakes. That was by Kerry Genro. And then we also had the phylogeography of the iconic Australian red-tailed black cockatoo and its implications for conservation by Carl Hewitt. Yeah, that first one's a bit of a mouthful. But <laughs> luckily, luckily, we've actually already had podcasts with both of these authors, one called Resistance is Female, the other one Hidden in Plain Sight. And I mean, I know I would say that these episodes are great, but they really are fantastic episodes. I really love talking to both Kerry and Kyle and some of their co-authors. And to encourage you to go and have a listen yourself, here's a wee taster of those interviews. Uh, yeah, so my name is Carrie Gendro. I'm a third year PhD candidate at Virginia Tech right now. So the reason why the sex linkage of these genes is significant is that sex linked genes are inherited differently than autosomal genes. So being sex linked has a lot of implications for evolutionary dynamics. What that might mean is that the there could be stronger selective pressure on the females versus the males because they're only expressing one copy. At first, I hesitated a little bit to get into this system because I thought it was so well-defined and well-known, but to find out this huge piece of information that had been missing before, the the fact that the major gene involved in tetrodotoxin resistance was sex-linked was exciting to me and, and showed me that there was still an opening um, in the system, like a way that I could contribute more. Hello, I'm Kyle Hewitt. I recently completed my PhD at the University of Sydney and the Australian Museum. Here we were kind of considering subspecies equivalent to evolutionary significant units. So a big problem which is getting focused on quite a bit lately in literature is that many threatened species, uh, such as the red-tailed black cockatoo, contain these isolated populations which are becoming relatively small. They have a relatively small effective population size. So small populations are probably going to suffer the effects of inbreeding depression, so their reproductive fitness declines. But also the loss of diversity in general decreases the capabilities to adapt to a changing environment. Our paper was sort of first characterizing these conservation units or these evolutionary significant units, but they're not stopping there. Figuring out if any of these units were probably suffering from genetic erosion, so inbreeding and loss of diversity. And then considering how can we boost their genetic health? How can we stop this genetic erosion? Of course, there were tons of great papers up for consideration, and here to talk to us about the competition as a whole is the Editor-in-Chief of Heredity, Professor Barbara Mabel. Welcome to the podcast, Barbara. Well, thanks for inviting me to contribute. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to have you here. And I guess the first kind of question that would be good to know is, what was the motivation behind starting this prize? Because it's pretty new. So as a society-run journal, we're always looking for ways to better engage with the genetic society community, and we especially like to support early career researchers. And so a prize and for students seemed like a, a good idea to help with this process. It, we can also help students get more engaged with the genetic society as well, which is a bonus. So Barbara, I'm wondering what your general impressions of the student papers were. So what kind of topics did they cover and what did you see particularly that gives you hope for the next generation of scientists? Well, there was a really wide range of topics. It was quite an impressive diversity we had. It covered most of our remit, more on the population genetic side than other things. But we had most of our editors who received contributions from students. So we really covered the whole spectrum. And 
the quality was generally very high. So we went through a process. We had 28 papers that were submitted altogether. Um, we went through an initial long listing process based mostly on the comments from the reviewers, if the reviewers and editors were excited about the subject. And there still could have been some work to improve the paper, but as long as they were enthusiastic, that led us to the long list. And then for the short list, we narrowed it down a bit more by getting more of the feedback from the editors who handled the papers on their perspectives on how well the students responded to the reviews and whether they thought there was a potential for generality of the papers. And then for the final short list, we had a small panel of editors who looked at them in more detail, and we were really looking for papers that were cutting edge in terms of analyses and data really well written and presented, and there was a, a generalizable message that went beyond one study system. And so I think that there's so much potential among early career researchers, and so giving them a platform, I think, will be really good for developing their ideas. Mm, fantastic. Yeah, and I mean, I have read quite a lot of those papers, and they are really quite standout. Um, but obviously, the most standout were the winner, Donald McKnight, and the two runners-up, Kerry and Kyle. So I wonder what you thought was particularly good about those papers. So we had a really hard choice choosing the top one among those three, because there was complete consensus among the panel that those three really stood out in terms of the importance of the message that they were conveying and their ability to extend beyond their own study system. There also had to be um, highly accessible papers in the way they were described, so they should be understandable to a broad range of readers. Uh, and they showed a, a great depth of understanding of what the study could contribute and what the limitations might be. We also had a couple of honorable mentions, and those were papers where we didn't originally have a category, but they really stood out in other ways. So there was one for the best student-led paper on theory by Leah Bory. And this was quite a complicated approach, so it might not have been quite as accessible, but it was still really an impressive range of analyses and has the potential to make a really important contribution. The other one was a paper that was led by Matthias Mota, and we gave this for the best student-led paper from an author from a lower middle-income country because there were some really good things in it, really good analyses. It was really well presented, but the data... It was based on microsatellites, so it didn't have that cutting-edge approach that is the focus of a lot of papers, but there was still really good science there, and probably not as much funding as was available for the other studies. I mean, I totally get what you mean, Barbara, about accessibility, because I think, you know, I've not done ecology for years. It's not the kind of genetics I do on a daily basis, but a few paragraphs into reading Donald's paper and it was kind of a real page turner and I immediately not only understood what he was talking about because of the clarity of his writing but I also really cared about it as well um, mm. and I think that's that, a real sign of a good paper and that someone's telling a story that you really care about. Um, my next question to you is you gave a lot of feedback to the student authors and I'm wondering having read these papers what kind of advice would you give to students on writing a really great paper generally speaking? So my biggest advice to students is not trying to submit a thesis chapter as a paper for publication. One of the things about writing a, a PhD thesis is that you've always got lots of information and you probably have more analyses than would be appropriate for a paper. So it's best if you can write your chapters as papers that are very focused with a few main messages in mind rather than every analysis you did. But it's quite hard to go the other way. So it can be obvious when you get a paper review where sometimes the discussions are very long. So focus is the biggest thing. So you want to have a few take-home messages 
then have really clear objectives that the methods, results, and discussion are centered around to really make sure that you've got the main points really clear and that you don't have anything that's not essential for understanding that message in the paper. A second piece of advice is that it, you should respond to all the comments from the reviewers. Even if you think they may not have misunderstood thing, you should change something. If they found something unclear, it probably means that you could have a different way of saying the same thing in a clearer way. So it's really important that you don't just make responses in the cover letter, but you make a change to the manuscript itself. And it really helps editors and reviewers and makes their job easier and more favorable about your paper if you tell them where you've made the changes. So include line numbers, um, include a, a version that has marked up changes so they can quickly scan to see if you've made the changes. So the papers that were in the shortlist all responded really well to reviewers. So they got through quite quickly. Yeah, I have definitely been in that position where I have maybe tried to keep too much from my thesis in and the analyses might be interesting, but they're not complete and they're not ready for publication. But hopefully people listening will take on board all the advice you've just given. And because we're Heredity, hopefully they'll publish with us. So why is Heredity a good journal to send your papers to? So despite the fact we're published by Springer Nature, it's a society-run journal. So the Genetic Society is one of the oldest learned societies. Heredity itself is well-established. It's over 70 years old, so it has an established reputation. But the advantage of publishing in a society-run journal is that the income from the journal comes back to the society, and so it comes back to the authors. So the money that comes from Heredity goes directly back into the grants that the Genetic Society provides. So we have a Heredity Fieldwork Grant that is associated with Heredity directly, but our money also goes towards the summer studentships, travel grants, grants for small conferences, and all the other initiatives that are funded by the Genetic Society. We also would like to help ECRs as much as possible. And so we, because we're a small journal, we have a small editorial team. Uh, including a dedicated editorial system who's paid by the Genetic Society, which means that we can make it a more personal experience than some big journals and hopefully make it a positive experience for authors. Mm, no, for sure. And hopefully we can also get them on the podcast. Yes, um, definitely. <laughs> great. Well, it's been wonderful having you on, Barbara, to uh, share your thoughts about the student prize and to get your kind of opinions on what makes a good paper. And hopefully next year we will have some more incredible student papers to discuss. Yes. And thank you very much, James and Emily, for the amazing interviews. Yeah. Well, that's us for today. My thanks to Don and Barbara for joining us and to Emily for being my co-host on this episode. It's been a delight having you join me, Emily. Thanks so much, James. It's been a blast. So you can see a full collection of the longlisted student papers on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast on all good podcast platforms and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen, and on behalf of myself and Emily Baker, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>